I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. Great to see you. Where in the world do we find you today? Today in London, but previously in Singapore first to speak at ATX Singapore and do some advising with the Singaporean government and then at VivaTech and now London Tech Week. So whistle-stop tour of a number of places. How exciting. Well, we've heard about the great progress that the Singaporean government has been making in AI policy. So this help explains with your participation, some of this great work that they are doing. We've had some great conversations recently at Equal AI. We've had some great conversations on the Hill. Uh, very encouraging to see some of the progress and obviously such a different conversation than just a few years ago when we weren't getting the same level of interest, let alone the same type of sophistication in the, the conversations we were having. Just last night, we had an impromptu happy hour with policymakers, staff, and others in this space to give more airtime to have these conversations. Conversations. It was a fluke. We didn't know how it would play out. It was so much fun. It was so productive. We've gotten a lot of requests. So in the fall, we're going to keep this going on a regular cadence so that there can be more space for these both productive and fun policy conversations. I don't know what that says about me that I find this fun, but uh, it's so lovely to be in a space where other people find this so much fun and really want to make progress. So I'm encouraged. That's really good. And, you know, one of the things that I've been doing in London is also going to the House of Commons and speaking to people who are also beginning to have this conversation. So they had a debate today just on AI and also released in the Times today as uh, I think a fairly thoughtful piece on how you might use AI in the legal system. Mm. And in what circumstances the public might trust you using AI in the legal system. So there's some bedtime reading for you. It's in yeah. the Times. Of London. What could go wrong there? Meanwhile, <laughs> I saw in the download today, humans are more likely to believe disinformation generated by AI in a recent report. Very interesting with the elections coming up. So no shortage of important conversations right now. Speaking of which, I'm so excited for today's guest. We're going to be talking with Kevin McKee from DeepMind, who has done so much thoughtful research. We're only, I bet, going to be able to scratch the surface today, but answering these important questions about communities, their participation, what some of our biases are, how to overcome them, and how to make sure that our AI development is an inclusive process. So let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In AI We Trust. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Kevin McKee, Senior Research Scientist at Google DeepMind. In his role, Kevin has led research projects at the interface between machine learning, social psychology, and socio-technical systems. He's worked on algorithmic development and evaluation, environment design, and data analysis. He has also collaborated on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, including leading the organization's LGBTQ employee group. Prior to DeepMind, Kevin worked at the Tobin Project, where he directed multiple research projects within the organization's inequality research initiative. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. To start us off, 
let us know, how did this become a passion of yours? When did you first become interested in AI and how has that interest evolved during your tenure? Yeah, I, I like the way you asked that about when I became interested in AI and not in particular AI research. AI is actually a pretty early interest of mine. So as a kid, I really fell in love with Isaac Asimov, right? So like iRobot was one of my favorite books. It might be a little bit odd because I don't know if, if you've read any of Asimov's work, uh, you know, it's a little, it's thoughtful, right? It's not exactly a fast paced sort of part of literature. But what I really enjoyed about his writing was, you know, his stories examine artificial intelligence and robots as a way to explore the human mind. They're deeply interested in the relationship between humans and machines. And, and actually one of my favorite things, one of one of his main characters, Susan Calvin, she, uh, in the books, she's described as a robo-psychologist, someone who studies the behavior and psychology of intelligent machines. And, you know, somehow from, from that little kid reading that in California to my current life in London, working at Google DeepMind, you know, I found a job that's not too far away from that. That's really interesting. And, and I think it echoes some research that was done at the University of Cambridge, where a lot of people who are working in AI were asked, you know, how did they how did they first come to AI? And very many of them quoted some sci-fi type of book as an entry point. But let's look now at the work that you're actually doing. So you work at Google DeepMind has encompassed a variety of research projects that cover the intersection of AI and society. So we're hoping that you can tell us more about these papers and their revelations on AI fairness and other works that you've published on at that interplay of AI and humanity and what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, of course. I, I think as you pointed out, I, I'm, I'm lucky to work on a pretty diverse set of projects uh, covering AI ethics, social psychology, algorithmic developments, so that's building new AI systems. The common question that sort of motivates all of this work for me is, is how we can draw from a range of different perspectives, whether that's kind of disciplines or communities to build systems that, that benefit us all. And especially people in communities who have historically been overlooked, who have been marginalized. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about any of the projects. I mean, I know we kind of chatted about some beforehand. So one that came up this year, I'm pretty proud of is on, uh, we, we call it the, the Veil of Ignorance project. Um, so it's, it's on the question of how we can decide what sorts of values to align our AI systems with. So maybe to take a step back as a starting point, you know, many researchers in the AI space agree that we want to align AI systems with human values, but there isn't a single canonical set of human values, right? So like reasonable people can reasonably disagree about what sort of values we should be using to direct our policy goals, right? To, to organize our policies. So if we have a world of possible values to pick from, then how do we actually pick which ones we'll use to align AI systems? So we borrowed a concept from moral philosophy, the veil of ignorance. The idea of the veil of ignorance is that you place someone behind the veil of ignorance and ask them what value we should pick to govern society. And what, what that means is behind the veil, they don't know where they personally stand in society so that they don't know how they'll benefit from different values and the policies that will result from that. And so we wanted to test this out for AI so we, we actually got participants in a psychology experiment. We brought them into the lab, put them in a group situation with an AI assistant, and we asked them essentially to pick a value that might govern the AI system's behavior. So people could benefit more or less depending on their position within the group. And we put some people behind the veil of ignorance so they weren't sure whether they would benefit or not. And other people we told directly, you know where you are, this is how these different policies will affect you. And then saw basically what sort of values people picked. 
And what we found was that behind the veil of ignorance, people were more likely to pick a value that prioritized helping the worst off. Um, so they were more likely to mention fairness as a justification for why they picked their value, like the, the value that they did. And ultimately, they, they reasoned less from self-interest and more, again, from kind of fairness. And I think maybe to mention one last thing about that, particularly interesting was that political orientation didn't really affect this process. So people from all parts of the political spectrum ended up picking the value that directed the AI system to help the worst off. That is fascinating. I would love to hear more of your thoughts on, you know, why it played out that way. Why when they were able to hide behind the curtain, it, it turned out the more altruistic side came out of people. I mean, that's very encouraging and interesting. And also, you know, the lens of fairness, you know, it's an interesting choice. You could choose different to, to qualify and quantify that discussion. The fun and hard thing about this episode that we've been so looking forward to is you have so much for us to dig into. And so we <laughs> want to make sure to both touch enough of it so that our listeners can see the breadth of what you've been studying so deeply and what we can learn from, but also some of the depth to really understand what it is you're teaching us. I mean, another thing that we are very mindful of, we just had an episode in celebration of Pride Month, and we are technically still in Pride Month today as we speak, although it won't be by the time this is published. So last week we spoke with Chris Wood, and it was a really interesting conversation to see what LGBT tech is doing in this space. And just this week, you know, Axios came out with such interesting, not surprising, but horrifying data about the LGBTQ plus community in particular and how they have experienced even more online hate and harassment than most communities. Over 47% said they experienced online hate or harassment just in the past year. You mentioned other underserved communities. So rates are also very high with Black and Muslim communities. 38% of both groups reporting being subject to attacks over the last 12 months. More than a quarter of Jewish respondents, 26% said they were targeted in the last 12 months, 21% from the 2022 survey, and then over half of teens. So, you know, thinking specifically as we continue to think about Pride Month and, and the special ways that the LGBTQ plus community could both be served by AI, but also harmed in unique ways. It's wonderful to talk to you about it because in, in throughout your career, you have studied the intersection of AI technology and the LGBTQ plus community, including a 2021 paper entitled Fairness for Our Unobserved Characteristics, Insights from Technological Impacts on Queer Communities. So can you please tell us about this paper? What are the some uh, unique impacts on the community we should be aware of and, and, and think about how algorithmic fairness has a unique meaning or meanings that should be applied in, in other unique communities? Yeah, it's a really great question. I'm glad you raised that. And especially in the context of all the really, really upsetting statistics that you just also went through, right? And so I think this paper is very relevant. It came out of concerns that our team all shared with each other. So about, about how AI could affect the queer community. I mean, there, there are definitely some promising aspects, but a lot of what was on our mind were the potential risks. And related exactly to what you were just talking about, one of the primary risks posed by AI is reinforcing existing patterns of bias and discrimination. So systems, uh, AI systems, when you, when you train them, when you develop them and apply them directly, you know, we call it out of the box. So that means without any modifications, what they're prone to do is to learn from prior decisions and their effects, right? So they learn from the data that you provide them and that in can include biases that affect minority communities. 
And unfortunately, it's it's well established, again, as you as you just discussed, that, that queer communities face discrimination in a number of areas in daily life. Of course, a number of different communities experience kind of similar bias and discrimination. So, so the reason why we wrote this paper at the time, well, both at the time and now, there are researchers who work on algorithmic fairness, right? So the question of how we can ensure we don't develop AI systems that maintain or exacerbate kind of inequalities that exist in the world. And unfortunately at the time, there wasn't much attention on the challenges particular to the queer community. Um, so fairness research often overlooked queer people and the specific challenges that um, LGBTQ individuals might face. And so we wanted to gather what evidence we could and identify different areas that we should be paying attention to. It, it seems in, in retrospect, with like a, a year or two of um, hindsight, this actually has started to make a difference. So there are a few different very talented research teams in the, the fairness community that have been focusing on bias towards the queer community, just to kind of name a very pertinent example recently. One thing that is on everyone's mind over the past few months are language models. So these are modern AI systems, right, that are able to very fluently produce text. Oftentimes they can seem human-like, they can be applied in a number of different ways. And luckily now there's a lot of attention around the biases and discriminatory patterns, particular to queer people, that these models can be prone without specific intervention to reproducing, right? So they can, they contain lots of stereotypical information or beliefs, not that they hold, but that were contained in their training data. And luckily a number of groups have kind of been helping to establish tests and possible approaches to reducing bias and discrimination in these sorts of language models. Super, thank you very much for, for that wider view. And I'd just like us now to hone in on a specific piece of work that you've been speaking about, the LGBT plus job discrimination and the possibility of AI maybe helping in the hiring process. How can AI help achieve this goal and what are the risks associated with relying on AI to do so? Are there any other risks that you think that AI poses perhaps uniquely to the LGBT plus community that you're concerned about and beyond that hiring process? Yeah, it's a great question. So if we can get a very good grasp on the sorts of ways that, that bias and that unfairness can manifest for LGBTQ plus job applicants, for example, if we can get a really good grasp, a very kind of thorough perspective of what the challenges are, the ways that they might show up in our data, the ways that they might manifest for applicants and people going through those processes, then it is possible to develop AI systems and apply AI systems that can help to mitigate those biases, right? So like, I guess what I'd say is that AI systems are a very good way of, you know, automating processes, right? So they can they can definitely make things efficient. They can help out, especially in, in very resource constrained areas like hiring. You know, they can be a great way to be able to reallocate resources so that you can focus on big challenges that you just haven't been able to in the past. The challenge, of course, is that when you do that, you also want to be making sure that you actually have oversight on the way that that automation process is proceeding. So the first step is to really get a good handle on, like without any AI on the picture, what the problem is and how we're able to track and monitor it. I think as part of that process, you actually want to approach and talk with members of the queer community to ask them what their goals and concerns are. I mean, 
you know, it, it's entirely possible we're in a situation where nobody in the queer community or very few people would want AI kind of looking over their applications. And that's like actually a very important concern that we want to take into account when developing systems for these sorts of applications. If we do have a very comprehensive view of, for example, the sorts of bad outcomes and things that might happen, right? So like if AI is disproportionately likely to reject queer applicants at a certain stage in the process, right? Or if they're particularly likely to screen out resumes based on something we really think shouldn't be taken into account, like gender identity, right? We want to be monitoring those sorts of outcomes to make sure that the different tweaks a system might be making to the process aren't causing unintentional bad effects. And after that, then you can specifically identify, you can, you can kind of like when you're designing a system ex ante, you say, like, actually, what we do want to guarantee is that, you know, gender identity does not have an effect on its own, isolating everything else on an applicant's chance of getting to an interview, right, or getting to the offer stage. So it is possible to design systems and, and kind of optimize them for those purposes. The big risk is that along the way, you might be unintentionally you know, like you have set that goal for gender identity, but then potentially an intersectional identity um, might actually be really disproportionately affected by that, right? So it turns out that the algorithm doesn't consider race. And so then all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing worse outcomes in a different area. I, I have to apologize. I know that was a little bit of a scrambled view on it, but I think that it, it is a very important question to be considering. No, don't apologize. Take us through these processes with you. I mean, it's really a wonderful opportunity to think through it and to be able to observe how, how you think and address and approach these issues. They are so complex. I mean, you know, you're talking about the ability to monitor where there is discrimination that requires labeling and other forms of identification of demographic information and personal information that, you know, people might not want to be sharing. And so you have this dichotomy of wanting to ensure that you are not doing harm, but also wanting to be respectful of people's privacy. And you mentioned in your thoughtful answer that one of the really important things is talking to people in the community and hearing what do you want. But it depends also how you structure that conversation, because if you say, what do you want in its privacy? Well, then you might be missing the opportunity to be understanding data or the algorithm otherwise, where there could be biased outcomes. Yeah, of course. That's a really eloquent way of, of summarizing it. One of the core things that we discussed in, the, in, in our paper or came to in the queer fairness paper is for certain characteristics that you know we, we called unobserved characteristics. So they're things that uh, really ultimately, if you want to know about, you have to go and ask that person about, right? Ultimately for unobserved characteristics, there seems to be like a fundamental theoretical tension between privacy and being able to monitor fairness of outcomes, right? So, so like, like ultimately if queer community, if the trans community doesn't want, or, or certain members of the trans community don't want data to be collected on their identity or, you know, aspects of their, their daily life that then imposes constraints. I mean, very reasonable and very important constraints, right? On your ability to do that close monitoring to say like, are we unintentionally causing worse outcomes for a group that we don't want to do that for? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear about the, the, challenges that are so deeply important and intention in your work. You mentioned, well, there may be certain individuals within a community or certain elements of a community. We talk about LGBTQ+, but within that, you could have so many, obviously, different opinions. You have so many millions of individuals who are, are not all going to have a consensus view on, on any of these really deeply important questions. And we're so fortunate that in your work, you've taken on some of these really hard questions and, and given us so much to learn from. For instance, the scaffolding cooperation and human groups with 
with deep reinforcement learning, looking at the human groups and I'm very curious to know, you know, what we can learn from that because it also seems connected to other of your papers, including a participatory initiative to include LGBT plus voices in AI for mental health. We can see this theme here of, of how you're looking at the human perspective and also pulling out uniquely the LGBT plus community role. So one question I have for you, obviously I've packed in many, I have many, many questions <laughs> for you, but I guess the one I would land on is what is the role the community should play and what, what can we all do to make sure that the voices are heard in a way that's meaningful as the AI systems are being deployed and, and built at scale? That's a, a really, really great question. I think like ultimately this is a question that is right at the core of all of my research projects. I mean, ultimately, you know, communities, social connections, that's where we draw a lot of value and not just kind of instrumental practical value in terms of getting through life, going through our work, like being able to live, but also just sources of joy, right? Sources of happiness, like connection is really inherent to being human. And I think first and foremost in, in algorithmic development work and AI research, right? It's really important that we prioritize supporting those sorts of connections and supporting communities. That ultimately, you asked kind of what role community plays in my research and just in this entire process of developing better AI systems. And I think ultimately the, the most responsible path is to approach people, include people, right? Uh, not just as individuals, but also if they want to as members of communities. So to talk first about the participatory initiative paper that's with some really excellent collaborators here in England and and also colleagues at Google DeepMind. So, so that project that we're, we're actually just getting started on right now, um, the practical parts of it, so, so that project is basically a participatory project. I, I guess it, it's a project aimed at trying to do exactly what we talked about earlier, which is approach members of a community who could potentially be impacted by artificial intelligence and asking them, you know, before we start any work on AI, in this case for mental health, what is it actually that, that you know, you feel your needs are in this space? So, so just in, in the mental health space, do you feel that you have any needs? And if so, what do you think they are? Uh, what's missing and what, what would you most like to see? What do you think in general about artificial intelligence? And specifically, you know, here is a proposal that, that researchers and scientists think could help to support mental health. But do you agree? Do, do you think that this actually would be a helpful thing? Or, I mean, completely orthogonal to that question, is that something that you would want? And so the project involves a few different sorts of tools. So surveys, uh, focus groups, other sorts of, we call them participatory methods to try to collect people's perspectives and, and really synthesize advice, not just for our own kind of algorithmic development work, but also for generally anyone who's interested in working in this area, what sorts of views there are on those questions about what is appropriate. That's so welcome to hear because, you know, so often one thinks that picks are actually sort of producing things because they can rather than because they need to or they are necessary to the community. And I hope and imagine you're going to be able to produce things that are much more not only tailored to the community, but tailored to their values. And, and that brings in the trustworthiness of, of AI for any community and any tool that you're building. And we talk about trust and responsible AI all the time, of course. That's the purpose of our podcast. 
And so I wanted to ask you a question around making AI trustworthy. In order for AI to be effective, humans need to trust the systems that they're engaging with. And that's obviously some of the reason that you're doing the work on asking specific communities. Human AI interaction is something that you've been studying a lot in your work and another paper, Warmth and Competence in Human Agent Cooperation, and yet another, Humans Perceive Warmth and Competence in Artificial Intelligence, and that's in iScience. So can you really tell us a bit more about that research, your findings on human preferences and agents, and how this can really help other AI developers to think about trustworthy use of AI? Yeah, of course. I'll use as a launching off point, actually something that you just said, which is, um, you know, I think you raised the point that sometimes we can end up in situations where we start to do something because we can, right? Rather than uh, necessarily there, there's a need to. And I, I think that relates actually to a kind of trend, let's say, or history in AI research of, uh, this is gonna sound very technical, but I'll, I'll kind of expand it, um, of focusing on optimizing what we might call objective metrics. And, and so what that means, an objective metric might be a score in a video game, it might be a, a accuracy, so um, kind of like percent correct in some sort of classification task. Um, it's a goal that we want to maximize or minimize, a, a numeric goal. And the reason why AI researchers have focused on these sorts of objective metrics is that they've been very, very helpful at building and developing smarter, more capable systems. So a lot of the successes in AI research over the past decade have come specifically because we've been able to numerically define some sort of goal. Um, so, you know, scores in a video game or in chess, right? Like, like each of these kind of metrics, uh, again, to, to go back, accuracy at kind of classifying images as a cat or not a cat, um, the ability to kind of get those metrics uh, allows you to develop a deep learning system and, and kind of improve its performance. So for this work, the papers that you've mentioned, we wanted to study whether that focus on objective metrics, whether the success of that approach carries over to human AI interaction. So, so the question ultimately is, do people like the systems that, that maximize those metrics? And so anytime that we're talking about the putting an AI system in a deployment and in interaction with the human, we, we should be kind of also maybe considering what they prefer, right? Whether uh, returning to the question of what the, the needs that people want to be addressed and how they want them to be addressed. So it's probably not surprising that other factors other than kind of objective like score can matter quite a bit in human AI interaction. Um, so people do like systems that perform better at whatever task they're doing, but more importantly, they really like systems that they feel are aligned with their interests. And that's what we mean when we say warmth. So in social psychology research and you know, the titles of the papers that you mentioned all, like they mentioned warmth and competence. So in, in social psychology, perceived competence is the answer to the question, how good is this other person or thing at achieving its intentions, its goals? And perceived warmth is the answer to a similar question, a related question, how aligned are this person or this thing's intentions with my own intentions? And we find that you know, not only do people make sense of AI systems in this sort of way, this social reasoning process, but also that warmth matters quite a bit. Uh, in fact, more than how a system might actually objectively be doing and benefiting the person. So people, it turns out in some circumstances in our studies, were willing to sacrifice their own sort of benefits to themselves in order to interact with warmer AI systems, right? So they're willing to kind of forego some monetary gains in these, uh, in these games and just so that they could have the chance to interact with systems that they had uh, seen previously as warmer. 
Well, and one other piece that strikes me in this very thoughtful response you've given us is you're talking about these issues of warmth, altruistic agents. You know, it really tends to be along the lines of what we've been seeing happen more and more these days of the anthropomorphization of AI. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. You know, is this a cause for concern? Are we just enjoying the thoughts of a Black Mirror episode that we could be, you know, pretending we're playing in? Or are these real concerns that we should be thinking about? Yeah, um, another another really great question. That concern is front of mind for us. So maybe touching back on the topic of, you know, perceiving warmth in systems and how, how much that matters to people. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with Goodhart's law. It's, it's a pretty popular or well-known, I guess, adage in AI research. So, so it says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And so the, the implication in this case is that we want to pay attention to the perceived warmth, the perceived altruism of systems, right? How much people like them. And we want to keep track of that. We want to make sure that we include that among these sort of outcomes that we are assessing and you know adjusting based on, but it could potentially not be the best thing to to optimize directly for that, right? So we what we want to develop are systems that that actually possess and exhibit altruism to the extent we could say that, right? So so like systems that actually care in some sort of sense of that word for the effect that they have on people uh, with whom they interact. People's trust in AI systems can be a very good thing, but we want that trust to be earned. And the potential tension with anthropomorphism, you know, it can be a double-edged sword in that uh, anthropomorphic kind of cues can give us clues. They, they give us a script for how to interact with new systems, right? So anthropomorphism is a very adaptive thing, psychologically speaking, in terms of being able to make sense of the world and try to give yourself an easier time predicting what the behavior of the sorts of things around you will be. But it also can lead to trust and potentially skip the trust building step, right? So what we want is if there is anthropomorphism in the systems we create, we wanna make sure that it comes along with that sort of earned trust, right? So that it's there to, uh, to facilitate interactions, but that you know we are pretty confident that people can actually go through that kind of trust assessment exercise themselves. Thank you, and what a wonderful place to end this wonderful conversation, the need for, everybody to go along on the same path to trust is, as you say, the only way to achieve true trust. So thank you for that. And I sadly have a last question. I'm sure we could have asked you a great deal more and learned a great deal more, but thank you for your time today. And so we ask the same question of every guest, and that is, if you were to have a magic wand and you could wave it to achieve one wish to help us in our efforts to achieve responsible AI, what would your wish be? Yeah, I, I like this question a lot. I'll bring it back to the way we started our conversation talking you know, about moral philosophy and the veil of ignorance. I feel the same way that many of the participants in our studies have felt. I'm, I'm very interested in building AI systems that, that benefit everyone. There are lots of people and lots of communities that have been left out of many boons in history. So if I could wave a magic wand and make one wish come true, I would use it to guarantee that people who don't have much um, and who face risks or potential harms from AI, to guarantee that those communities benefit at least as much from the AI we develop and deploy. You know, that, that's why we're in it, to help people, especially people that need help. Wonderful. That's great to hear. Thank you.
Yeah, I can't imagine landing on a, on a better wish that we will all hope comes true. And the nice thing is, it sounds like a lot of your work is helping us realize that goal. So thank you for all you're doing. I'm so sorry. We just touched the tip of the iceberg of the depth of your thoughts and even just talking about all your reports that we should be learning from. So uh, we'll look forward to continuing to study your work and learning from you. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay, just as we thought, another really fascinating, thought-provoking and, and productive conversation, listening to Kevin and again, just scratching the surface on some of the really important work he's doing and has done in this space. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Well, obviously it has to be, you know, as he picked up my question, that we have to be thoughtful in the tools that we create. They are the tools that we actually need and that communities are going to be able to espouse and trust. And so, of course, I really like the approach of going to the communities and saying what what will be helpful to you rather than sort of somehow as developers thinking that you know the answer and trying to impose something on people from the top. Clearly, the, the way to help create trust is to start with what does the community want? And so I think that that's an absolutely perfect approach to solving some of these bigger questions. Also, of course, all the work that he's done for people who are more vulnerable and your statistics that you quoted, they're just horrifying. We know them, we we know them, but when you actually put the numbers to them and speak them out loud again, you know, it, it, it just brings it all to the fore. So that, for me, my big takeaway is building communities, asking those communities, and then building the tools that are going to be useful to those communities. That seems to be the perfect way of addressing creating AI for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, I think he's given us so much to think about, both in his broad thinking, but also in his specific work to help support LGBT plus community members in their ability to trust AI. You know, I think he raises such a key point about uh, we need to ensure there's trust, but we need to make sure that it's earned. Um, and with these generative AI models, you know, that they're seeming to skip that really important step. So much we can learn from him about what it means to earn trust, what it should mean. I think it's so important that we put those safeguards in place to make sure that it is earned and then try and scale that. So there could also be consistency in our expectations. And again, looking at the specific work he's done to help support building the trust with LGBT plus community members, making sure that the vulnerable community members that data supports, unfortunately, making sure that we are being mindful of the needs of community members, making sure that the trust should be earned and then extrapolating, how can we think about other vulnerable populations? How can we apply those lessons to make sure that other underrepresented or underserved communities can also be benefiting from the lessons that he and others are teaching us on how to make sure the AI is inclusive, how to make sure that in the wave of his magic wand that we realize that goal of ensuring that those who have been left behind too often can be part of the benefits and the realization of better societies with the enhancement of AI and making sure that it fits their needs. So really love that conversation. Sorry it had to end, but I'll look forward to reading more of his work. Likewise. Hey, great to see you today. And I look forward to seeing where in the world we'll be talking to you next. <laughs> Thank you. And you. 
subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.